Well, good morning, Peachtree. As we wake up on this Sunday morning, I'm so glad that you have joined us for our broadcast today or whether you're gonna be joining us in our services in the sanctuary. It's so good to be with you. I know that as we wake up today, there's a lot of people who feel like celebrating. And at the same time, there's lots of people who are filled with great concern for our country. Regardless of the swirling emotions of what you're feeling and the highs and the lows or what your political persuasion or allegiances are, I wanna establish a little bit of perspective this morning by walking us back into a little bit of history and to an amazing prayer. Our story begins in 1915, where there's this young pastor who is newly ordained to a small congregation in the great city of Detroit. At this time, Detroit was the fourth largest city in the United States, and it was not only bustling, but it was bursting at the seams with all of the explosion and the industrial revolution, and particularly with the advent and the growth of the automobile industry. This pastor began his ministry with the small 66-person flock that was entrusted to his care with a heavy heart. The reason that he was sad is that his father, who also was a pastor and who was the inspiration and the hero of his life, died shortly before he had a chance to be able to see his son ordained and to follow in his footsteps. Now imagine 1915. This young pastor starts in this church in a big, bursting city with all kinds of racial tensions, only two years away from the beginning of the war that was supposed to end all wars, World War I, the loss of life and loved ones, the horrible conditions for many of the people working in the factories. And then in 1918, the great Spanish flu, the epidemic that swept through the United States and decimated so many lives. You can imagine what these early years were like for this young pastor. And he served faithfully there for 13 years to try to bring the gospel to that place and was formed by his experiences of the way that that worked in that community. The church grew to about 700 members. And in 1928, he took a new position, a new post, and moved from Detroit to New York City to this place, to Union Theological Seminary, which was the flagship seminary for the United States at the time. It was in this place where this now pastor and professor influenced some of the greatest minds of a generation, people like Paul Tillich and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and more personally to me, my grandfather, Al Conwisher, who was a student who studied under this individual at Union Theological Seminary. The person that I'm referring to is one of the most influential people of the 20th century, and his name is Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was a professor and a pastor and a great mind and spokesperson for the United States, particularly in the middle of those of those great decades of our country's history. And one of the things that happened when World War II broke out, and you can imagine with all the experience of everything that he had seen and the boom and the bust of wars and disease and hardship, that when World War II broke out, somewhere in the early years of that war, Reinhold Niebuhr picked up a pen and he started to write a prayer. And that prayer began like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In this prayer, it's known as the serenity prayer. And we often know the beginning of those words because this is one of the most influential prayers of our generation. It continues like this. It says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right. If I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. A prayer that calls forth from us Acceptance, courage, and wisdom. My question for you this morning is, have you ever prayed this type of prayer? Reinhold Niebuhr's theology is summarized in two words, Christian realism. He was pushing back against all of the Pollyannish and pie-in-the-sky and rose-colored glasses views of change and what could be done. And he wanted to provide a lens of both the hope of the gospel, but also tempered with the realism of what really can be accomplished. Today we're marching through and continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. And in the passage that we're gonna look at today, the Apostle Paul gets incredibly realistic and practical. We're gonna talk about serenity beyond prayer with an absolutely fantastic passage. But I want to remind you that the goal of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is he's talking about in the first three chapters, the finding of peace. And then in these last couple of chapters, how do you maintain, how do you keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? It requires making a great deal of effort, he says. And in this passage, it goes like this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from a life with God because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbors, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a footstool. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. So that they may have something to share with someone in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. And so get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. God, may these words that were written so long ago reach through all of time and eternity and speak to our hearts right here, right now. And we know that this will happen for we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You've probably seen it for yourself. There's a person who seemingly has it all and yet is completely miserable. And at the same time, you'll meet someone who seemingly has nothing, nothing going right for them and so little. And yet their life seems to be so full of joy. What is the difference between those two different people? It's not their circumstances. It's an inner sense of peace. And today, regardless of what emotions or how much or how little you have, I want to help you to be able to find and to keep that kind of inner peace. And it happens by being able to not trying to change your circumstances, but by changing the things that you can change, the things that are within your realm of control. I want to talk about these four things. I want to talk about an inner peace that comes by changing what you think, what you feel, what you say, and what you do. First, we're going to talk about changing the way that you think. And to illustrate this, I want to start with a fantastic movie that came out about two decades ago. I hope that you've seen it. It's starring Russell Crowe, and it's a movie that's called A Beautiful Mind. It chronicles, it's based on a true story of John Nash, who was an absolute mathematical genius. But as he grew into adulthood, there was an aspect of his genius that was able to find patterns in things that was also rooted in a form of mental illness. And so genius also turned into obsession that turned into paranoia that turned into schizophrenia. All of the treatments of what they attempted to do at that point in time were horrifying to watch on the film. And yet towards the end of his life, John was still haunted by many of the same things that he struggled with. But in that beautiful mind, he had learned to be able to change it and had gone from being in an asylum to now being a professor at Princeton, which was his alma mater. And he is approached in this scene by someone who's to ask him and to tell him that he has won the Nobel Prize in economics. The image of the Nobel is... Oh, I see. So you came here to find out if I was crazy. 
find out if I would screw everything up if I actually won. Dance around the podium, strip naked and squawk like a chicken, things of this nature. <laughs> Something like that, yes. Would I embarrass you? Yes, it is possible. You see, I, I am crazy. I take the new medications. But I still see things that are not here. I just choose not to acknowledge like a diet of the mind, I choose not to indulge certain appetites. Like my appetite for patterns. Perhaps my appetite to imagine and to dream. Professor Nash. It's good to have you here, John. honor, sir. Thank you very much. A privilege, Professor. That pen scene represents his colleagues acknowledging not only his genius and his accomplishment, but the fact that he has become a part of their fraternity, a true colleague. The sweetness of that moment is not just the capacity of his mind, but that he was able to deploy that mind in the right way in spite of all of his challenges. He says that he still sees the things that he knows that are not there but like a diet of the mind, he chooses not to indulge on those thoughts. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility or the uselessness of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from their life with God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. What the Apostle Paul is talking about is that in the pagan world of that day and age, that they had lost their capacity to see their mind as a place where they could stand firm, where they were in control of what they could think about. You are in control of what you spend your mind on, the freedom of what you will indulge your thoughts with. Many of us have been binging on unhealthy and unhelpful thoughts and taking in too much and in the wrong kinds of thoughts and media in today's day and age. Your mind, Dallas Willard says, is your place of first freedom. And the way that the Apostle Paul describes this is that you can be made new. You are to be made new in the attitude of your minds. You are given an incredible freedom. You have been given a beautiful mind. And even in the midst of the worries and the fears 
the anxieties and the struggles of your life and of our times. One of the ways that you will only get to inner peace is to choose what you will indulge your mind on. And so to find inner peace and to keep it, first, we have to change the way we think. Secondly, we have to pay attention to what we feel. I don't know if you saw the news article right before COVID happened in the early part of February, there was this headline article. This article amazed me that there was an unexploded World War II bomb found in central London that prompted blocks having to be evacuated. Imagine that here we are 80 years removed from when the Germans were bombing London, that some sort of bomb fell from the sky, didn't detonate, and over time got covered up and worked on, and then somebody's doing some sort of construction to do some sort of new high-rise or building or something, and as they're digging, they discover this unexploded bomb and have to bring in experts and explosives to make sure that it doesn't detonate. The reason that I love this story, besides the fact that nobody was hurt, the reason that I love this story is that it reminds us that certain things can get buried in our emotions deep within us that are incredibly dangerous if we don't ever address them and diffuse them. You probably have some significant emotional baggage that comes from some of the bombing raids of your life. I don't know what it was when people dropped certain things into your life and the kinds of emotions that got buried deep within you as a result. Here's what I do know. I know that if those things don't get addressed, that they will often explode. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then he tells us to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. I love that little bit of advice to not let the sun go down while you are still angry. The Apostle Paul is saying you may be experiencing the emotion of anger. The emotion of anger is not a bad thing in of itself. It's what you do with that emotion. He says, be angry, but do not sin. There's a difference between experience the feeling of anger and what we do with that that feeling of anger and the nursing of it and the, the caring of it as opposed to diffusing it. One of the things I really encourage you right now in order to find a sense of inner peace is to have a conversation with God about your heart about your feelings right now. Not only for you to not just indulge your minds on certain things that are unhelpful, but also to think about your feelings. What are you feeling in that moment? And is there anything that you can do to diffuse some of the bombs that have been buried within the soil of your own heart? And so to find and to keep an inner peace, first we need to change what you think, what you feel, and also what you say. It wasn't that long ago, just uh, in fact, within the last couple of months that I was doing a wedding. It was an absolutely fantastic ceremony that took place in someone's backyard. I even took a picture of how absolutely beautiful this was. Look at the tent that was set up in the backyard and the incredible 
beautiful flowers that were there. I want to show you a close-up of the cross. Look at this flower cross. What you can't quite get perspective of is I think this cross was about nine or ten feet tall. It was humongous and gorgeous. There was a special ring bearer in this ceremony. The bride and the groom have a, a special affection for their golden retriever dog by the name of Happy. And Happy was coming in with the groom and me and standing up front waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. Happy was being an obedient dog and waiting and the bride came in and was sitting by our side and everybody thought this was so cute that the dog had a flower collar on. It was a gorgeous day. The aroma of all of those flowers, the anticipation and the enthusiasm of them making their vows together. I was in my opening salvo soliloquy on the statement of the gift of marriage when Happy the dog was getting a little bored and decided to wander off behind the flowered cross over into the bushes. And Happy took that moment, and maybe he was nervous, so we'll cut him a little bit of slack, but decided to go to the bathroom, number two, right there in front of everybody at the church in that tent. And, and it smelled awful. It was so bad that we couldn't ignore it. The bride took her bouquet of flowers, put it underneath her nose, and was like, that is so bad. Even the people in the very back of the tent could smell the happy gas that had come from that happy dog. You might be wondering while I'm telling you this story, besides the fact that it's just a fantastic wedding story, and how I'm going to write a book one day called Hatch, Match, and Dispatch, Stories of Baptisms, Weddings, and Funerals. But that's not the reason I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you the re I'm telling you this story for a reason. And the reason is this. No matter how many flowers you buy, no matter what that day might smell like, if you put something awful in the midst of it, it's going to smell. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul talks about it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word for unwholesome there is the word for something that has gone rotten in the original Greek. Do not let any rottenness come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The Apostle Paul contrasts this language. You don't see it as well in terms of the contrast in English, but the rottenness of something that's gone bad and what comes out of our mouths is set in contrast with what he says at the end of this passage where he's talking about how we're supposed to make our lives an offering and a fragrance that pleases Almighty God. I have a friend who is struggling in his marriage right now. And every time he and I talk, he never has a kind word to say about his spouse. And in light of this passage, I shared it with him. And I told him that I think the most important thing for him to do for his marriage right now is to make sure that no unwholesome or rotten words come out of his mouth in regards to his wife behind her back or to her face. Because when that happens, it makes everything go bad. Inner peace will only be found when we are willing to match our words to the holiness and the righteousness of what we think and what we feel. And so inner peace comes by changing what you think, what you feel, what you say, and finally, 
what you do. I remember back when we used to live in Southern California, one day I got to go on a special tour that took place at Disneyland. Disneyland was founded in 1955, and it's the only park of all the Disney parks in the world that Walt actually walked around while it was open. Disney World didn't open until after Walt had, um, had already died. And so they have a special tour with, it's kind of a historical tour of Disney in regards to, to walk. And it's this tour here. It's a guided tour that's walk in Walt's Disneyland footsteps. And you can even see the little Mickey holding Walt's hand and you get to follow an expert guide and they tell you all kinds of amazing stories. They, they walk you through different aspects and artifacts of, of Disney. Your mind gets filled with, with wonder of all the, the different creative ways that in the ingenuity and how Walt put together that park and the dream of what that was. When you get to the end of that particular tour, they give you a certificate with a pin attached to it. This is what's lying on your plate for lunch when you finish the tour. There's that pin that says, walk in Walt's Disneyland footsteps. You have accomplished walking in Walt's footsteps. Except in my opinion, you really haven't walked in Walt's footsteps. Oh, you've walked around the park and you've enjoyed what he's created. But what animated Walt's life was creating happiness for others. It's one thing to walk around and appreciate what someone else has done. It's an entirely different thing to have your own life dedicated to the same kind of mission. I know way too many Christians that say that they've walked in Jesus' footsteps, when in reality they're just going to the museums of appreciating what he has done without actually taking seriously what they're called to do to further that legacy. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You and I are called to walk or to live, depending on how you translate it, in the way of love. It's not about going to church, not going to church. It's not about that Bible study or that Bible study. As Bob Goff talks about it, they're not really about Bible studies, but it should be about Bible doings that we actually have to put into practice what our rabbi, our teacher, compels us to do. My friends, we are on the cusp of a whole new season in the life of our community. And the thing that's really going to change is going to be whether or not, not so much whether or not you voted for a particular person and how you feel about it, but what we do about it as Americans and as God's people. You might be really happy today. You might be really despondent today. What I care about is whether or not you've got to the acceptance and the courage and the wisdom to find an inner sense of peace. That your life isn't dictated by the circumstances of your surroundings or who's in power. We could have the greatest president in the world and still be a rotten people. 
We could have the worst president in the world and we could still be a great people. Your greatest contribution as a citizen is not the act of voting, even though that's important. Your greatest contribution as a citizen of not just this country, but of heaven, is what you think, what you feel, what you say, and what you do. And for me, I'm gonna try to walk in Jesus's footsteps and walk in the way of love. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we know that in these difficult times, that there are so many who have gone before us and seen so many great challenges, the likes of a Reinhold Niebuhr. And in the midst of his faithfulness, he wrote a prayer, a prayer about acceptance, about wisdom, and about courage. Lord, we pray that prayer in this moment, that you will help us to accept the things that we cannot change, that we will have the courage to change the things that we can, and that we will have the wisdom to know the difference. Lord, I pray for a people at Peachtree and anybody listening to this, that they would find an inner sense of peace and that we would not draw our ultimate joy and satisfaction by winning votes, not the election of the United States, but your election of us as your people. And so help us, God, to walk in your ways. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.